All right, we are going to be in 1 John, the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. I'm just going to read it, and then we'll pray, and then we will discuss it together. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Father, this is your word. It was ordained from you, by you from the beginning, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and written by people you chose who have who trusted in you and were submitted fully to you. And so, God, we know that it is trustworthy. We know, God, that it is the source of what we know about who you are and what you have done and who we are and who we get to be because of what you've done. So please open our eyes to the glorious truths that are here and help me to communicate them in a way that would be faithful to the truth of your word and worthy of the beauty of it. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my goal here in this message as we continue on in 1 John is is. John talks about Christ as our advocate. And in last week, we talked about um, this kind of recapping that, that we are called to walk in light, and how we talked about how God is light, and how he's the source of light. And we kind of, if you didn't listen to that, you can go back and listen to it or watch it online. Um, but it's essentially, we were saying that God is light. Everything that is light comes from him. He's the source of all things, and how we tend to get drawn away and, and by reflections of the light. And so we use that illustration of the sun and the moon, that God is like the sun, and that he is the source of all light. There is no darkness in him at all. But the moon, its beauty depends on being a reflection of the light. And so the moon represented all the other things that we create in our world, the different worldviews, political ideologies, philosophies, just anything that we do in our life that we say, like, well, there's goodness in them. It's acknowledging that the reason there is light there, the reason it's good, is because it is reflecting God. And when it stops doing that, it is darkness. And so we were talking about how it's so important for us to stay fellowshipping in the light around the source of the light rather than trying to call darkness light and trying to justify um, other lesser versions of that. Worshipping the creation rather than the creator. 
And so he says in this, he continues on, he says, look, we're, we're to walk into the light, not walk in darkness. And now he continues on in this idea. And he says, look, essentially, he's going he's gonna to draw this, these, these lines here and saying, like, you can walk in light or walk in darkness. And then he basically says, look, I'm, I'm writing these things so that you won't walk in darkness, so that you won't sin. But you're going to find yourself there. You're going to find yourself orbiting around lesser things because that is the sin nature in us. And he says, when you do, when that's the case, we must be aware that we have to be mindful of that. If you say that that's not the case, if you say that you do not ever walk in darkness, then he says that you are calling God a liar and the truth is not in you. And so what do we do? And he says, if, when you do find yourself in this case, he says, you have an advocate in Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he says he is the propitiation for our sins. And that is a big word that we're going to dig into. And so my goal here is I want us to see how is Christ our advocate? What does it mean that he is the propitiation for our sins? And why is all of that good news in how I live my life? When John says, when you find yourself in darkness, he says, essentially, you're going to have two choices. Like, as he's laying this out, he says, you find yourself over here, you find yourself in sin, you can either deny that and continue in darkness, or you can step into the light and confess your sins and let Christ be your advocate. He's saying you can step into the light, you can confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He's, there's this choice in the Christian life. There's this choice that when we find ourselves kind of straying over here and we find ourselves wandering around in darkness, we have a choice in that moment. Sometimes we find ourselves wandering in that darkness because something really bad happens around us and all of a sudden we wake up and realize, holy cow, I have been going down a destructive path and I didn't realize it until right now. Then there are other times where we are finding ourselves wandering in darkness because someone else has called that out in us and confronted us in us confronted that in us. Sometimes it's when we're reading scripture and we see, oh, the way I've been thinking about that or what I've been doing there, that's, that's in darkness. That's not in light. And when we do, we have a moment. There's a moment there when we are confronted with that sin. There's a moment that we have a choice. We have a choice in that moment to serve as our own advocate or to let Christ be our advocate. And there are a lot of ways that we serve as our own advocate. I don't have time to really dig into those. But a, but a couple of ways, a few ways that we actually do that. We serve as our advocate. When we find ourselves over in this darkness, we find ourselves then defending ourselves. We become very defensive. And what we have to do at all cost is convince ourselves that what seems like darkness is not darkness. What seems like sin is not really sin. The Pharisees were really good about that. They created their own world, their own law, so that they happened to pass all of their own law. They declared them righteous. We are so, we're so good at this 
that notice what John says. He says, if you say there's no sin in you, he says, you, you're calling God a liar, but he says, you deceive yourselves. Notice he's not saying like, look, you're lying and you know you're lying. You know you're covering up this evil. He's saying you've deceived yourselves. You think that you are without sin. You think that you are walking in light, but you've deceived yourselves. And so when, sometimes when that comes in, we, our natural inclination is to defend ourselves. Well, but this is why this isn't actually sin. This is why what I'm doing is actually good. And that's where we get into situations like we talked about last week, where we say that we are obeying the word of the Bible and the truth of the Bible, but we are doing it in a way that dishonors Jesus. And we call it good. That's one example. We become our own advocate, determining what God's word really means. Now, if you find yourself, if you feel that you have a strong, a warning sign of this is if you feel you have a strong command of the word, if you would say, I know the word, I know the truth. And if you find that the word of God always backs up your thoughts, your actions, your views, it always supports your view on every issue, then John's warning is for you. That's to whom he's speaking when he says, if you say there is no sin in you, then you're a liar. You're calling God a liar, and the word is not in you. You've created your own law and your own version of the word where you've declared yourself righteous. That is the very definition of self-righteous. And John is saying, don't advocate for yourself in that way. You have a better advocate that rather than finding yourself righteous, you can have Christ's righteousness. Another way that we do that is that we tend to normalize sin. So when we're confronted by sin, either in the word or someone else says something to us, or we realize like we've just made a mess of things and we trace it back and we're like, ah, oh, it's because I went down this road. We, we look at it and we say, no, I know that it's sin. But you're, you're, I know I'm orbiting around the moon here. Hey, but look, Jim's here too. So it can't be that bad because Jim's a pretty good guy. He goes to my church. And we find solidarity in our sin, thereby minimizing sin. That's another way that we serve as our own advocate. So if I can't, if I can't just flat out defend myself and say, I'm not guilty, I didn't do this, this isn't sin, then we say, yeah, it's sin, but I, like, I, I feel like I kind of am deserving of probation. Right? Like it's just a slap on the wrist kind of thing. It's not that big of a deal. But look what John says in chapter 2. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's kind of a, it's a weird phrasing there. He said, if anyone sins. It sounds like he's saying, look, we all know that you're mostly not going to sin, but if you should happen to. But that's not, that's not actually what it means, obviously, because just two verses earlier, he's saying, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And so he's not saying that, but what he is saying I think it's very similar to Romans 6. In Romans 6, Paul says, when he's talking about how you are under grace and no longer under the law, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So I think it's, it's John's way of saying, look, the purpose of my writing is so that you won't sin. You are called to live in light of Christ's righteousness and to pursue righteousness and holiness. So that's why I'm writing these things to you. But when you do, remember that you have an advocate. 
And what he's, I think, pushing against and what Paul is pushing against in Romans 6 here is this idea that like, well, sin is just human. And we've talked about this before. Sin is not human. Sin dehumanizes you. Sin is destructive. God created you without sin, but sin has come in because we've wanted to be our own gods. And so sin dehumanizes us. Now, I understand what we mean when we say, well, we're human. I get that, and I think that's okay in most circumstances, but I do want to make sure that we understand that sometimes when we do that, we're normalizing sin. We're saying, what we're saying is, hey, there's a certain amount that's okay and understandable because after all, we're human. But John's saying, no, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. And I think what we do, we become our own advocate over here because we'll say like, you know what, it's just not that big of a deal. And we do this for others all the time. Think about when someone has told you that they were struggling with a sin, what is your response? Especially when they tell you they are struggling with a sin that you also struggle with. I mean, how many times do we lead with, hey, we all struggle with that. Like, oh, but no, you're, you're, but you're such a good person and you're doing all these other good things. Don't, don't worry about that. When we do that, we are trying to become the advocate for them. Like we're saying, essentially, when I've done that before, I'm basically saying to you, hey, you don't need Jesus to be your advocate. I'll be your advocate. I'll defend you. And the way I'm going to defend you is by normalizing sin and saying it's not that big of a deal. But notice that John doesn't say, if you sin, don't worry, everyone else does it too. He says, if you sin, don't worry, you have an advocate in Christ. And that is so much better. And the last one I want to address here in as Christ as our advocate is, is, is this. There are those. So there are those who defend themselves and just say, hey, I'm not, I, this is why this isn't actually sin. There are those who normalize it and say, you know, look, we're human. What else can you do? Then there are those, and you can be these different things in different times, different days, but then there are those times where you feel the conviction of the sin. You know it's dark. You know it's not okay. You're racked with grief, and it becomes a weight on your shoulders. And you say, I know I'm in the dark. I know I'm supposed to be in the light. I know I'm in the dark. I'm going to work myself out of this. I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to stop having these feelings or these emotions. I'm going to stop doing these things. And, and then that will get me to walk in the light. I will, I'll just, I'll get, I'll drag myself out of this. And then you just keep falling deeper and deeper and deeper because you're serving as your own advocate. You're saying, no, 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 Jesus, I can do this without you. Let me first clean up everything and then I'll come to you. And they are crippled by guilt and shame and defeat. But listen, listen to what John says. He chooses a very specific word here. He says, my little children. That is a word. This is where we lose a little bit with the language. But, but what he means in this, my little children, it is the most endearing, gracious, compassionate, kind phrase he could possibly say. 
He says, my little children, I write these things so that you don't sin. This is not the overbearing apostle who's like, look, I put it all down on paper so you won't mess up. But if you do, you got Jesus to fall back on. He's not saying that. He's saying, my little children, those who I love, I would give my life for. I don't want you to sin because it leads to destruction. I'm writing these things to protect you and guard you, but I want you to know that when that happens to you, you have an advocate in Christ. You don't have to hide in your shame. You don't have to work yourself out. Remember that. And so these are the, this is the tension. Saying, look, you can, you, when you're finding yourself in the darkness, and you will, you can be your own advocate or you can let Christ be your advocate. And we are natural self-defenders. We are good at deflecting and defending and justifying. So we feel like, who could be better than me to advocate for me? I know why I did that. I know what the situation is. Who's a better advocate than me? Well, there's an old saying in the legal profession that he who represents himself has a fool for a client. It's very fitting here. There's foolishness to advocate for yourself. You don't need to. Because in being your own advocate, deceiving yourself into thinking that you're without sin or telling yourself it's not that big of a deal or believing that you can make up for it on your own, John is saying you're going to go further into darkness. But there's another option, he says. Confess. Confess your sins and come into the light. Step into the light and let Christ be your advocate. What does that mean? He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so we would, most of us would say, okay, right. So letting Christ be our advocate means that he forgives us. That's true. But we're going to dig deeper because it is so much more than that. Notice in this verse, he says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I always found that phrasing strange. Here's why. Faithful, totally get. Totally get when God says, we're going to forgive you for your sins, and it's through Jesus Christ dying on the cross, and we are forgiven for our sins. And I am faithful, so when you confess, I will be faithful, and I will forgive you of your sins. But he doesn't just say faithful. He says, and just. How is forgiveness just? That makes it sound like the just thing to do is to forgive us of our sins. That the right thing for God to do, the most justice-oriented thing for God to do is to forgive our sins. But we would never say that in the Christian faith. We would say it's an undeserved gift of grace and mercy and that we don't get what we deserve. That it's actually his, his moving of justice off of us. So why would he say, if you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Well, that is where that beautiful word propitiation comes in. It says he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, show of hands, how many of you use the word propitiation in your everyday language? Okay, right? Me, I'm not raising my hand. I was an example of how to raise your hand. I don't either, okay? But essentially, these are some of those words where you say, hey, can't we find a you know, better word, more friendly word? Every once in a while, you get this word that you say, ah, but if we know what this means, 
it is amazing. So this word, propitiation for our sins, it means a couple of different things. It's got two parts to it. One is it is, means that he paid the price. It is a satisfaction of our debt, our sin. And then it means it is the reconciliation of our relationship with God. So, so one half of this, when he says propitiation for our sins, he could put like in there, well, satisfaction of our sins or paying the debt for our sins. That is part of what that word means. And that's part of the good news here. And now people get uncomfortable with this. We, we think about Jesus Christ dying on the cross. We think that's barbaric. And why, why, why is it needed? Like why, like this, this is just, it's, it's uncomfortable. And sometimes it feels like, well, you know, we just don't understand justice. But I don't think that's really the case. Our problem isn't so much that we think there shouldn't be justice. It's that the world thinks that, that they are more just than God. Here's why I say that. If, if you want to offend our culture when it comes to our salvation, which hopefully that's not your goal, but... We do know Scripture talks about how the gospel is an offense to some, and so we know that that's the case. And there are two things that I have found that offend people when it comes to preaching the gospel. One is the suggestion that a person needs a Savior to rescue them. So definitely one issue that I get sometimes is that it's offensive that you would say about anybody that their sin is so bad that they need forgiveness from God, that they can't make up for that, that it, it has to be just forgiveness from God, that they even need that, they've offended God. So that's one way. The other way is to suggest that Jesus can save anyone and that no one is beyond his forgiveness. So one is to say to somebody, for you to get into heaven, you need to be saved by Jesus, and your sins need to be paid for. The other way is to say, and Jesus, he pays for anyone's sins. Hitler could be in heaven. Both of those things are an offense to our culture. Because for the world, there's a line. Worldly thinking says there's a line up to which they feel people are generally good and deserve to be in heaven. But once you cross that line, you're hopeless. Once, that cro once you cross that line, you're done. And so what they're saying is up to that line, remember, normalizing sin, there's a certain level of like we, we get a mulligan, we get a certain number of mulligans, whatever the case is. Up to that line, it would be unjust of God to keep you out of heaven. And then once we cross over that line, it would be unjust of God to forgive and let them into heaven. And so if we're in charge, we basically our strategy is, hey, grace for small sins. And we say this isn't that big of a deal. Grace for small sins and justice for the big sins. And if we were in charge, we would basically say, well, I'm gonna, I, would, I would just let, I would let all the good people like me and people who are like me into heaven and all the bad people like well they would go to hell that totally makes sense and that is just so the question is and do we believe in justice or do we want justice i mean everybody talks about justice right now but the question is who is just me or god because here's god's view 
God's view is that we were created to live in the light of fellowship with God in perfect obedience to him. And at the root of all sin is rebellion against him as God and against his kingdom and his rule. And through that, sin entered the world and is the cause of all pain and destruction. Small things become big things. The root of all the big evil that we look at in the world and we say, well, that shouldn't be, all start with a small root. Eating an apple eventually becomes genocide. See, in the kingdom, all acts of treason are big sins. Like when you throw out the charge of treason in our military world or in our, in our legal world, there's not misdemeanor treason, right? Like treason is treason. You are cracking the foundation of everything, like the, everything that we hold dear. Like you are inhibiting it. You are destroying it. And that's what we did. That's what traces back in the garden. That everything we look at is all comes back to this root of Mankind saying, I am my own God, and I rebel against God's rule. And what Jesus said, what God says what, through his word here, that Jesus is the propitiation for your sins, he is saying, it is paid for. Every wrong, every act of treason that you and I have committed has been paid for. Every act of treason that I will commit from here on forward. Can you imagine someone being forgiven and declared not guilty for an act of treason and then go and committing treason again and coming right back before the same court? How many times do you think that they will let him off with a slap on the wrist? 70 times 7? Every single sin that you have ever committed or will ever commit is paid for. That's what propitiation, that's part of what it means. And understand that it's not that God is just some detached judge that imposes the right sentence and says, well, it deserves death. Okay, Jesus died in your place. All right, not guilty. Understand that there's great emotion for God in this as well. His wrath burns against our sin. It burns as a father's burns against the sin that has caused pain and suffering in his child. The sin that has broken his relationship. What father would be worth being called a father whose wrath did not burn against pain and destruction caused to their children? I mean, so many families in this area have been broken by drugs and alcohol. I mean, it's just generational. And if you have been in that situation, let me ask you, how do you feel about drugs and alcohol? You feel apathetic? How do you feel about the people who who push it for their own gain, not caring about the consequences? How do you feel about the people who encourage it because they're also gripped as well and misery loves company? How much do you want to see justice done? How much do you want to see the world cleansed of these things, to, for these things to be made right? Now, multiply that by a million, and you are still infinitely away 
from the good and right wrath of God that burns against sin. As he watches gossip, for example, damage and destroy and grieve people. And then he sees his children who committed that sin minimize it and say it's not that big of a deal and be their own advocate. His wrath burns as he watches his creation use his good gifts and pervert them to destroy and harm his children. And he is long-suffering and patient. But justice is brought, and it's good, because it means every wrong will be paid for on the cross or in hell. So Christ being the propitiation for our sins means, in part, that every sin, listen, every sin that you've ever committed or will commit is paid for in full. That's why the cross is so gruesome. Why it's so painful. He died the death that we deserved, and justice is satisfied. But it means more than that. We can't just substitute in there like, okay, propitiation for our sins. It means forgiveness, or it means atonement for our sins, or payment for our sins. It means more than that. It's not just that our sin is paid for and justice is done, but it also means that that wrath that God has against sin and destruction is satisfied. And we are reconciled back to him. It's the person who commits treason being restored to their former rank and standing and responsibilities. And we know this. We we see examples of this. Like you can pay your debt here on earth. Think of a wrong you've committed against someone. You could could pay back for it. You could say you're sorry. You can provide, you, you you can pay back any monetary loss. But that doesn't guarantee that the relationship will be restored. Like, have you ever done something where no matter how many times you've apologized, it still hangs over your head? Like, you can't let it go, or other people can't let it go. Maybe it's because you got off easy and everyone knows it, or maybe it's because you know you were never blamed for it or caught for it. Or maybe it's because the person you offended is is still so hurt and wounded by it that the relationship isn't just the same. Or maybe it's because what you did is so horrific that you just can't possibly make up for it. You just can't possibly pay it back. But no matter what you do, things can't go back to the way they were. Like you can't, you look at it and you say, I can't unring that bell. And no matter what you do, that will always be attached to you here on earth. Propitiation means that not only is that sin paid for, but it's no longer hanging over you. It's essentially God unringing that bell. It's not hanging over you in your relationship with him. When he looks at you, he doesn't see that anymore. It's the story of the prodigal son that I would encourage you to go back and and read maybe this week. Who wanted, who knew he'd offended the father and thought, I'll just come back as a slave. My father is a kind man. He is a generous man. He's a righteous man. He'll forgive me. But what the son didn't expect was a restoration of the relationship. He said, I'll just go back as a slave. And the father said, no, no. You're my son. You were dead, and now you're alive. God has made 
peace with us. In Colossians 1, he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I've thought before, okay, I get that when I'm in heaven, God will forgive me. He's forgiven me. I get to be there with him. He's going to restore that relationship. But I've thought before, when, I, when I've been thinking about the cross, I've thought, how does God look at me and not see the reason why Jesus had to be crucified? Like, there's still that part of me that says, okay, God, I know you're calling me your son, but still, when you look at me, you're still kind of thinking like, yeah, but you're the reason. Christ being our advocate means he has been put forward as the propitiation for our sins. He's paid for it in such a way that in heaven you'll be completely free. God will not think of it. Look at Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Or Hebrews 8. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. If you are in Christ, God looks at you Listen, right now, right now, God looks at you and does not see your sin. God looks at you and sees righteousness. How in the world is that possible? Like, how can God look at me with the week that I've had and say, I see righteousness? What's possible? Because he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And really, that's what we want, right? Like forgiveness is one thing. Atonement is one thing. But we want there to be a cleansing of it, right? Like we want to not ever do this again. We don't want to be in eternity where we are still continuing to harm and destroy one another. But fortunately, God doesn't just leave us at forgiveness or atonement or even reconciliation. He says, I'm going to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He makes us righteous. How? Because Jesus Christ is the righteous. That's why he puts that phrase in there. In in 1 John 2, in, in verse 1, he says, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He led this righteous life. That's how we can have this propitiation. It's because he lived a blameless, spotless, sinless life without spot or blemish. No one who was unrighteous could give us righteousness. He lived the life we could not live. And because he was righteous, his righteousness is credited to us. So this is what happens on the cross. Our sin is placed on Jesus and his righteousness from his life is given to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this very clearly. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin exchanged for his righteousness. So it's not our works that make, us, that make God look at us and see us as righteous. It is Jesus. It is the life of Jesus. He sees you as righteous because when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus that he has credited to your account. And it's not like a fake ID 
Or like you scanned Jesus' fingerprint and got away with something, he knowingly and, listen, joyfully looks at you and credits the righteousness of Jesus to you. There is no other news like this. This is what we talk about when we say Christ is our substitution. There's a, there's a symmetry to this that is helpful to me. He, he lived the righteous life that we could not live. And then he died the death that we deserved for our treason and rebellion against the kingdom. So that we might die with him by dying to ourselves and dying to our sin so that we can live with him in his resurrection. Raised to walk in newness of life. He lived for us so he could die for us. And we die with him so we can live with him. That is propitiation. And if you think about this and you ask the question, well, why does that matter? How should we live? We should live as those who have been forgiven and cleansed and made righteous, not ones who are just just scarcely getting by and, and hoping that our good works outweigh our bad. But we are cleansed. We are made righteous by him. We are new creations. You you are not who you once were. If you are in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. If the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. We live this way. We live this new way because we are new creations. We have new identities. And the rest of our lives here on earth are spent learning to walk in this new identity. And it's difficult sometimes and it's strange many times and it takes practice but we have to be reminded all the time that when we are sinning and we are in finding ourselves in these dark orbits and we feel like we are convicted in some way then what the gospel is saying to you that's not who you are anymore step out into the light confess your sins claim the identity that Jesus Christ secured for you on the cross. He has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so that should mean in our identity and as we live in this world, we should live as free people. Not freedom like our worldly views of it like we talk about in our country or whatever, but true freedom, meaning we don't belong to sin anymore. Whatever you have done, whatever you have thought, whoever you have been, you are free of that. It's been paid for. It doesn't hang over your head. You have been set free. And if you sin today and tomorrow or when you do in the next day, you have an advocate. Paul says in Galatians 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You're free. If you understand Christ as the propitiation for your sins, when you find yourself in darkness, you will go running, screaming out into the light, being like, I'm free! And everyone will look at you like you're crazy. Because in the world's eyes, you're foolish. Because why would you do that? Why wouldn't you be your own advocate? And you say, because Christ is my advocate. I'm free of that. It also would mean that we're pursuing the righteousness of Christ. So as we run into the light, we're pursuing Christ and his righteousness. Not as a way of paying back or proving ourselves, but as a way of pursuing who God meant us to be. Pursuing this identity that he has given us. This identity that he has empowered us to grow into and who one day we will be. 
Philippians 1, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so we follow him radically. We obey his commandments to love God with everything that we have and to love our neighbor as ourselves, not looking to prove anything, but in freedom that was secured for us, pursuing the righteousness that has been given to us. And we do it then with boldness, not afraid to fail. There's so many parallels here with Romans 8 that I don't have to go time to go into, but it talks about how we have this intercessor in Jesus. And in Romans 8, Paul talks about that too. We have an intercessor, an advocate. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is why we worship. This is why we sing. This is why we lift hands. Because if we are sitting here immersed in this incredible news that though I have walked in darkness, that God has called me out of darkness into marvelous light, not dependent on my ability to go after him, but he has called me and he has given me what I need. He has given me the righteousness that he requires. He has given me the holiness that he requires. He has given me the faithfulness that he requires. He's given all of it and he pulls me out. And why is all of that happening? Why is that just, as John says? Why is it just? Because he is the propitiation for our sins. He has made all wrong things right for all eternity. He has reconciled us to him, to our former glory, and to something even greater as we are adopted back as sons and daughters. He is the propitiation for our sins. He has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. And not just our sins, by the way. He says for the whole world. Again, don't have time to dig super deep in that, but I'll just say this. The whole world means every nation, every tribe, every tongue. John wants to make this clear. This is not limited to the Jews. It's not limited to the wealthy. It's not limited to the men. It's not limited to the educated. Every corner of the earth would hear this good news and will hear this good news. This death of Jesus that existed in real time 2,000 years ago in a singular spot in ancient Jerusalem would be the path to forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation to every corner of the world. I hope you can see why I think propitiation is a big important word. He is the propitiation for our sins. We are forgiven, we are atoned for, we are reconciled, we are made righteous, and we are given a new identity in Christ. And if you would be an advocate for yourself, you would remain in darkness, and that road leads to death. But if you would confess your sins and let Christ be your advocate, he will give you this identity. And it is his great joy to watch you grow into it. Even as we stumble like a father who watches their child learn to walk, he is joyful as he watches you grow, cheering you on. God is for you. He's cheering you on, ensuring that you will reach the finish line. If we could just get that through our heads, 
So when I sin, I don't need to justify myself. I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to be afraid of sin being called out. I have an advocate, one who loved me and gave himself up for me, one who lived for me, one who died for me so that I could die with him and participate in his death and then participate with, his, with him in his resurrection as a new creation. That's what it means that he is a propitiation for our sins. And so it's your choice. Who is your advocate? Jesus, the propitiation for our sins, and not just our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So go and tell them. Go and tell everybody. Let's pray. Father, this is just so, there's just so much. And God, you know that even as I tried to condense and clarify that it just still becomes so much because the truth is, God, that we could, we could consider what it means that you are the propitiation, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. We could consider that from now until we meet you face to face and never exhaust it. Never fully grasp that it was your desire to rescue us. That Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. That it is your joy to credit us with righteousness. It is your joy to rescue us and bring us out of darkness and into light so that we might fellowship with you. So God, please protect us from being our own advocates. And let us find in Jesus Christ, our true advocate, who loved us and gave himself up for us so that we might be called children of God. Amen.